What image comes into your mind when you hear the word Christian? What kind of person do you associate with that word? What does that person look like? Maybe it's a pastor or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher. For most of us, the image that pops into our head when we hear that word is probably someone who looks pretty similar to us. For those who live here in the United States, it's probably someone American or maybe Western European. And that's not really surprising. A lot of people tend to associate Christianity uh, as a kind of Western faith. But in point of fact, that's not actually true. The vast majority of the world's Christians today live outside America and Western Europe. For instance, there are, right now, more than 100 million Christians in the countries of Nigeria and Uganda alone. There are more Catholics living in the Philippines than there are in the countries of Italy and France combined. And although it's difficult to get an accurate count in the country of China, Many scholars who study religion in China and demographers who try to chart the population there think that within the next 30 years, there will be more Christians in the country of China than in any country in the world. Christianity is today a truly global faith that spans the world. As the scholar Philip Jenkins puts it in his book on this subject, The Next Christendom. He says, if you want to visualize a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela. Now, you might think that this worldwide expansion of Christianity is a fairly new phenomenon. And that may seem to be the case, but it's fact it's always been true. From its earliest beginnings, Christianity could not be contained. It spread very quickly from its roots in Israel and in the Mediterranean world out in almost every direction. For instance, by, by the end of the second century, the city of Edessa, which is in today's southeast Turkey, was a capital of a Christian state. By the early third century, there were at least 10 Christian bishops active in serving in what is modern-day Iraq. Ethiopia's king adopted Christianity in the fourth century and made it the, country, the, the country's actual religion. And by that point in the fourth century, we also have strong evidence of Christianity in parts of India, perhaps that had been around since the first century, maybe even through the witness of the Apostle Thomas to India. Before Christianity took hold in Europe, it already had a strong presence in the Middle East, in North Africa, and in parts of South and East Asia. Now, from the perspective of a sociologist or an anthropologist who's looking at religion and how religions develop, this spread of Christianity is an astonishing historical fact, given how small of a movement it was in its beginning. But for readers of the book of Acts, like us, 
This should come as no surprise. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus had promised right in the very first chapter of the book of Acts. In verse 8, when he tells his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, already within the first couple chapters of Acts, we begin to see this promise of Jesus realized in what the apostles are doing. Remember in chapter 2, Peter had stood up in representing the other disciples, had given witness in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people were added to the church through Peter's witness. And then over the next several chapters, this work of witness throughout Jerusalem, preaching the good news, continues. It's met with both resistance at times, but also with significant success and conversion. And we read that God is adding to the number those who are being saved and is growing his church. But then when we get to Acts chapter 8, that's when we start to see the fulfillment of that second part of Jesus' promise to his disciples in verse 8. That the gospel is beginning to spread not only throughout Jerusalem, but even to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this time, it comes not through the work of an apostle, like we did with Peter, the preacher in Acts 2, but rather with one of those seven Hellenistic Jews who were made deacons in Acts chapter 6. We talked about one in the previous session, St. Stephen. This time, we're in chapter 8, we're introduced to Philip, Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist. And the first thing we hear about Philip comes in Acts 8, verse 5. Luke tells us that after the martyrdom of Stephen, many Christians, not the apostles themselves, but many Christians are forced to scatter. They are dispersed out from Jerusalem and they head in different directions. And Philip is one of those. And Philip heads north to Samaria to preach the gospel there. Now, this is very significant that Philip is going to Samaria. Anyone who reads the Gospels knows that there's a long-standing antipathy and hostility between Jews and Samaritans. You see it in Jesus' ministry. And this, this hostility dates all the way back to the period when Israel and Judah split from one another, when the northern tribes of Israel split from the southern tribes in Judah. And this hostility, this conflict between these two groups, it, it involved a lot of different things, history, um, but also religion and politics. Jews thought of Samaritans as idolaters who worshiped incorrectly and who had disobeyed the law and corrupted themselves. And Samaritans likewise regarded Jews with great antipathy. If you want to think about the relation between the two groups, you could think of groups like today, the, the conflict between Bosnians and Serbians and how far back that conflict goes, or the great hostility between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. By the point of the first century, when the book of Acts is written, this enmity between Jews and Samaritans, it was very ancient and it was intense. But Philip 
once he's scattered from Jerusalem, Philip goes north and he goes to Samaria to preach. And then look what happens, what Luke tells us in verses 6 and 7. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, even though Jesus had told his apostles that they would be witnesses in Samaria, no doubt this joyful reception of Philip's message and his preaching in Samaria had to have been a surprising development. It's no wonder that the apostles in Jerusalem had to send representatives to check it out and see what was going on among these Samaritans. But the spread of the gospel through Philip doesn't end there. A little while later, in verse 26 of this same chapter, we're told that an angel tells Philip to go south on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the angel doesn't tell him why, he just says, go on that road. And when Philip arrives, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch returning from worship in Jerusalem. Now, this man was an official in the court of Candace, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Candace is probably not the name of the queen. It's most likely a title that she was given. But this eunuch, this Ethiopian, he was a man who had a high position as an official in her court. And he was obviously a fairly wealthy man because he had not only rode a chariot, but he carried with him a scroll, which would have been very expensive in the ancient world. And he was reading the scroll out loud as he was driving along, which was a normal habit of reading at that time. And he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Philip meets him and he begins to engage him. And he asks him if he understands what he's reading. And the Ethiopian says, no, he can't understand unless someone explains it to him. He needs assistance. And so Philip gets up in the chariot with him and he begins to explain from the prophet Isaiah and from all the scriptures, the good news about Jesus Christ. And then as he's talking to this Ethiopian, they come to a body of water and the man insists on being baptized and Philip baptizes him. Now, Luke tells us no more about this Ethiopian or what happens to him. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church refers to him by the name Bacchus. That's the name that they've given him. And the second century church father, Irenaeus, he says that this Ethiopian Bacchus was sent to preach and to evangelize in Ethiopia. And that may all be true. We don't really know. Christianity did, as I said, come to Ethiopia very early. But Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't say what happened to this man. His focus is simply on the fact that what Jesus said in verse 8 of chapter 1 is coming true, that the gospel is spreading to Samaria and through this Ethiopian, beginning to spread even to the ends of the earth. Now, in and of itself, this is a fascinating story, everything that takes place with Philip and this Ethiopian. But what specifically does it have to say to us today, outside of being an interesting story? 
I want to begin to answer that question by highlighting two themes in particular, two lessons that I think we can draw from this chapter. The first theme, the first lesson that I want to draw our attention to is this, that the sovereign God uses individual people to advance the church's mission. Remember what I said in session one. It's very clear throughout the book of Acts that God is the main actor. He is the one advancing the story. And this is incredibly clear in this story of Philip and the Ethiopian. In verse 26, we read that an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And several verses later, it is the Spirit of God who tells Philip to go and join the chariot. And then, when they arrive at that body of water, the Ethiopian asked Philip a question. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? And this question, what prevents me from being baptized? To phrase it that way is a way of recognizing that God has been providentially at work. The Ethiopian is, is drawing attention to the fact that God is orchestrating this meeting, meeting between the two of them, that he has given understanding of the scripture. And so, who are they to resist God in what he is doing? What can prevent him from being baptized? And then, right after he's baptized, we read that the Spirit carries Philip away to preach more elsewhere. Now, no doubt, God is the main actor here. All throughout this story of what Philip does and going down to this certain road and in meeting this person and getting into his chariot, everything is orchestrated by God. But at the same time, even though God is the one orchestrating it, it is clear that he is the one controlling what is happening. God does not act independently of his human servant. God, of course, could have simply sent an angel to the Ethiopian eunuch himself, or he could have just given supernatural insight to the Ethiopian as he was reading the scroll, but he didn't. Instead, God uses an individual person. He uses this deacon, Philip. And I think that two things are very clear when we recognize both that God is the one driving the action, but that he doesn't do it independently of Philip. God is actively at work through his spirit. He's not simply waiting around or depending on human initiative to get things done, but God is consistently working through specific human agents. And we often put these two principles, that of divine sovereignty, God's active work, and human responsibility. We often put these two principles at odds with one another. But that is not how the scripture has us understand the relationship between what God does and how he uses people. It may be a mystery to us how God's sovereignty and human responsibility are meant to interact. But that doesn't mean that both of them are not true and fully affirmed in Scripture.
As the Anglican theologian J.I. Packer puts it, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. That's the first lesson I think that we can glean from this story from Philip. It's a very clear demonstration of the point that Packer is making, that in the Bible and in Acts in particular, God's sovereignty, His controlling and pushing forward the story through His Spirit is not at odds with His use of responsible human agents like Philip to do the work of evangelism. But the second lesson that I want to draw our attention to in this story is that the boundary of God's people is wider than we might expect. One of the biggest themes throughout Acts, and in fact the whole of the New Testament, is that God has widened the bounds of His people, often in very surprising ways. I've already mentioned the conflict between Samaritans and Jews and how surprising it might have seemed to some of those early Christians that God was including Samaritans in His new people. But it's also true with this Ethiopian man. He was a Gentile by ethnicity, but more than that, he was a eunuch. He had been castrated. And because of that, according to Jewish law, he was unclean. He would have not even been allowed in the temple for worship. For Luke's early readers, this man would have been not just a foreigner, but someone who is an outcast. Certainly not the kind of person that you would choose to be a part of your church. And yet, it's significant that God chooses not just any Ethiopian, but a eunuch. Five times Luke tells us that he is a eunuch. He makes a big point of it. And God chooses a eunuch to include just like he is doing with Samaritans. You have to think about what this would have been like for those early Jewish Christians. All of a sudden, they not only did they hear good news preached, but now they find themselves bound to these people that they had just moments ago thought of as outcasts or enemies. And in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about this hostility that's overcome. He refers to the division between Jews and Gentiles as a dividing wall of hostility, a wall that's been torn down in Jesus Christ. All, he says, are now one in Him. This wasn't easy for early Christians. In the New Testament, we continue to see them struggle to overcome the past barriers of ethnicity and social divisions. And yet, Christians have no choice. Like it or not, God has made them one. That's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 4, that Christians have one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. They are no longer divided. Now, there's a lesson in this for us today. There's a sociologist named Zygmunt Bauman, a Polish sociologist, and he's written a lot about the way that we relate together in the modern world. And he has a word that he likes to use to describe our way of relating and our relationships. He calls them liquid. And he says that our relationships are liquid in the modern world because they're not permanent. They're easy to dissolve that our bonds are fragile, 
We enter into relationships, according to Bauman, because of some kind of mutual interest. All of our associations are voluntary. Friendships, work relationships, romantic bonds, even church and community relationships. They tend to be purely voluntary. And because they're voluntary, we can easily get out of them. And that's why Bauman says we like to use words like networking and connection. It's because it emphasizes just how much these associations that we have with each other are based on mutual interest. But what we see in Acts, in Acts chapter 8, with the inclusion of Samaritans in an Ethiopian eunuch, this is very different. These early Christians, they're not forming networks based on mutual interest. They're not choosing the people that they want to include. God is doing that. And through baptism, they are becoming members of a group that all of a sudden includes a lot of people they didn't choose. And now they find themselves bound together with Samaritans and with foreigners and with outcasts. And no doubt some of them would have probably preferred to keep some of those people out to maintain some of the old distances, but they aren't given that choice. And I think that this says something very important, very fundamental about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be bound together with people that you didn't choose. And the mission of the church that we see in Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament, just like the mission of the church today, is to recognize and live into that reality. That's part of how the church bears witness to what God is doing in Christ and the Spirit, by recognizing that we have bonds and relationships with people we didn't choose, and that we are learning how to carry out our mission together. God draws the boundaries of His people, and He draws them in ways that He includes people that we would not choose. That's a big part of what Acts chapter 8 is telling us. It was a very countercultural message in the world of pagan Rome, just as it's a very countercultural message today in our modern liquid world. But whether the world knows it or not, this news about the people that God is making, these new relationships, this is good news. And it is our task, just as it was the task of those ancient Christians in Acts, to make known what God is doing in Christ by living out that reality.